Um, so these, the best meetings always come with a note that there's no PowerPoint allowed. So I, I appreciate that, Mark. I appreciate 100%. No, yeah, no PowerPoint. Yeah. And, and um, please interrupt me as I, as I go through this. But I just want to start with a couple points. And that's that uh, when we talk about modern PR and modern public relations. Um, I want to set the stage for how we at PR Week see the industry right now and how we're covering it. And we, we aim to cover it as a business beat, you know, the same that any business magazine would cover an area, whether it's electric cars or whatever the case is, um, or, you know, auto in general, whatever the case is. So here are the big picture changes we, we have been seeing since the start of the pandemic, because I think that when we talk to people who are chief communications officers or who run corporate affairs or CSR or any of those things, companies, or we talk to the agency heads, uh, I really do think there was a bit of an inflection point that happened at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's continuing today with, with all of the issues that companies continue to go through. So number one, and, and I would say, I don't think there's really any doubt about this by the numbers. It's, it's a good time for PR. It's a good time for communications as an industry. So by the numbers, the average revenue change at a firm last year was up 18% over 2020. Uh, that's according to our agency business report in issue, which is this big in-depth issue we do every year. Um, a lot of mid-sized and smaller shops were up more than that. And now I know you're thinking, okay, well, that's up on a pandemic year with 2020, but those numbers were also up really significantly on 2019, which was the last pre-pandemic year. Um, the world's biggest PR firm is Edelman. They're on the verge of, and they, they might have already hit it, depending on uh, when we can get a peek at their fiscal year numbers, the, the $1 billion in annual revenue mark, which is a first for a PR firm, uh, really a milestone for the industry. The second biggest firm in the world is Weber Shanwick, and they're not that far behind them. So within two to three years, it's very feasible. You'll have $2 billion PR agencies, which was something that was unheard of years ago. Um, anecdotally, through the first half of this year, and really before uh, you started hearing all of this chatter about recession, 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 you, you really started to hear about client-side budgets being up across the board. And that is to say that companies were investing more in their in-house communications, but also investing more in the agencies that were working with them. So, so budgets up across the board and in the amount of people that they were able to hire and to bring on. So all of those are good things. Now, I know you're thinking, okay, so we're talking about 2021 and we're talking a little bit about the first half of 2022 and that's before uh, the inflation news really, really kicked in and all of the recession chatter really kicked in. But um, Omnicom Group, which is the second biggest holding company, agency holding company in the world, and they're the owner of Ketchum uh, and uh, Fleischmann Hillard and, and some other major firms. Uh, they put out their Q2 numbers yesterday and there was really optimistic news about the PR firms and their performance in the second quarter, which was a quarter when, you know, the inflation problems were already really taking place and where, where other economic issues were really on everybody's mind. And the PR firms were up 16% in the quarter. And that's really good because the creative shops were only up about 8% in the quarter. So that tells me that while there is some customer pullback on the broad consumer marketing, advertising, things like that, a lot of the PR services continue to really be in demand as we're in this next stage of the pandemic or whatever stage of the pandemic we are 
um, right now. Now, the caveat to that is uh, one of the other big holding companies, Interpublic Group, their numbers are out this week. So we're going to see if they post similar numbers, uh, if their numbers are different, the trends are different, whatever the case is. So you probably think of what are the firms working on and what are the, the in-house departments working on. So we hear anecdotally all the time uh, from the chief communications officers or people who have similar roles at companies that they're saying from the start of the pandemic, through the pandemic, my job is more important than ever. And how do I know that? Because my CEO is asking me more questions than he or she ever asked me before. And they're asking me about new things. And so I'm responsible for a different type of counsel more than just like, oh, how is this going to play in the media? And what is the media relations angle to this? They're asking them questions they've never heard before. And they're asking for uh, what they talk about as more of like a McKinsey level counsel. So they might be asking them for advice on, you know, what, what, what is going to be the next impact from the war in Ukraine and my business? What, what further impacts are gas prices going to have? Uh, what is the further impact of inflation? They're approaching it from a bit of a different way in that, in that these firms have media contacts all around the world. And so they are able to really get at what the reporters and the journalists are thinking in different regions. And that gives the CEOs at companies a different perspective. Um, I want to talk about how that's changed just for a second from early 2020 to mid 2020 and beyond. And up until, let's say, June 2020, there's this profound shift in the industry because before then, you would talk to somebody who runs communications at a company and you, you like, could not pay them to talk about internal communications. They would talk about, you know, we're, we're doing this campaign, we're doing this, we are bringing on creative people that might go and work in advertising, we're bringing in more uh, generalists, we're doing all these things. And then mid-2020, they really start to drill down on internal communications, employee-facing communications. And this stuff has becomes so important, especially in the early stages of the pandemic. So if you, I mean, if you think about it, if you work at a company, uh, a food production company, you have to do safety messaging uh, in at least two languages on the ground for thousands of employees. You have to communicate all of these different ways that they could have been, uh, you know, whether it's masking up or different safety procedures during the early part of the pandemic. So that continues. That does not go away. And you, you internal communications and executive communications with employees become super important throughout 2020. In mid-2020, you also, what comes to the forefront, and I don't think it's a secret in saying this, but in-house PR departments tend to be overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly white. And so as diversity, equity, and inclusion communications become more important after George Floyd's murder, and all of these companies embrace talking to their employees about this. They're leaning on their agency partners more so they are able to do it authentically because they find that if you don't do it authentically and you don't, um, you know, you have to go beyond just saying, you know, we're going to do a few different new scholarships or things like that. If you don't really put money behind it, you don't really walk the walk. Your younger employees, especially, will call you out on LinkedIn and will call you out on social media. So it's super important for them to do this authentically. And they're leaning on the in-house communications departments, they're leaning on the agencies at this point. And so as you get to early 21, you get to vaccination communications, which can be very controversial at a lot of companies, you get to return to the office. Um, 
you get to wellness communications as it is becoming evident that the past two years are really wearing on employees and they're they're really grinding down because everybody knows they're actually doing more work from home than they were in the office in the first place. Um, and this continues to this day. And one thing that all these threads have in common is that the communications departments and the PR agencies are playing a role in helping the CEOs and helping COOs and the chief human resource officers communicate all of these different things to employees. And so that, that really moves to the forefront in 2020. Now, while a lot of that consumer marketing is returned, these things continue to be extremely important um, as we get into the second half of 22. So just wanna talk about a few challenges that we hear about when we talk to people, you know, whether it's through our reporting or just chatting with people out there. Um, the great resignation or whatever you want to call it has been extremely pronounced in the PR business because it's a talent business, um, because the agencies uh, are largely selling themselves based on what kind of talent they have in-house, what kind of creative talent, what kind of executive talent, all of these different things. And you hear these just, just wild stories about people going to their, their bosses at the height of the great resignation and demanding just, just significant, significant raises. Uh, or saying they're going to leave. And and there is just such a mass movement of people all around. Now, that affects the in-house teams directly because they have to re replace people as they leave. Uh, but it also affects them as they are working with different people uh, on their agency teams at a much faster rate than they ever were uh, before. We do an annual salary survey, and in 2021, the average salary in the PR business was up 10%. Generally, year, every other year, it's more like in line with cost of living. Uh, so 2% to 3%, so up significantly. And I, I can tell you, I did, um, I did a roundtable with an agency on this recently about returning to the office specifically. Um, and, and there were some really smart, really top of the game people uh, from the Chicago area on this panel, you know, some from Granger, some from United Airlines. And this is something even the people really at the top of the game are struggling with is returning to the office and how to do it right. And all of these little challenges that, um, uh, that they didn't see before and whether and how to incentivize employees to get back to the office and how, what are the best ways to do it and how they should be talking about all of these things. Um, another thing I would bring up is a major challenge, and this is not new, but it's very pronounced right now because of the, the live tour, uh, is, is challenging clients and what kind of clients uh, an agency wants to work with. So um, you might have seen in Politico earlier this week, uh, Edelman has been working with Saudi Arabia trying to refurbish their image. That has not gone over well with everybody, obviously. Um, Oil and gas clients continue to be a challenge, not just for in the PR sector, but broader in marketing and creative and whether they would work with them. And a lot of this even goes to uh, companies like Facebook, uh, companies that have data practices that are not all on the up and up. And a lot of what, the, another issue was in early 2021, would you ever hire anybody who worked in the West Wing in the Trump administration? These are all things that, that agencies especially have to deal with. Um, one thing that we find this comes down to is what type of an agency it is and what their workforce is like. And if their uh, workforce tends to be younger and, and more uh, 
more liberal, for lack of a better term in this case. So, you know, they may, they may be more active in saying, we don't want to work with this client. Um, and during the great resignation period, that carries a lot of sway. So I would just close the points by saying that the thing that I think everybody should watch is just the divergence of influence. Now, we all know that, you know, look, uh, news attention has been moving away from the major networks and the major cable networks and, you know, the Times and the Post and the, jur and the Journal for a number of years. That's not new. But now it's becoming even more and more uh, just fractured. Um, and who has influence with with the younger generation, with Gen Z and, and the generation after that is is going to be really interesting. And I think for a lot of us who cover this space, uh, you really get pause at the spread of disinformation during the pandemic uh, and the spread of election misinformation and how quickly these things disseminated uh, in the past few years. And it's really concerning. And, and you see news um, about, you know, Facebook is actually taking personnel away from election integrity uh, when they had a lot more people working on it in the last election. And so we're watching to see what our social network's going to do to combat this, because this is a brand safety issue. Brands advertise on social media and they don't want uh, their logo next to something that uh, has a negative effect. Um, what, what is TikTok going to be like? This is, you know, what, what is, what kind of reinforcement uh, is Twitter going to do when whatever happens with Twitter happens over the next couple months? And you see Gen Z turning their more attention towards Discord and other types of social media. Uh, and so you see this real intensity picking up uh, in terms of influence moving away from traditional sources. Um, and I'll just leave you with this one last thing. And that's that if you want to be, if you want to really dive into one thing over the next year or two, I, I think it's TikTok. And uh, there's a few different angles to this. Obviously, there's the regulatory environment in Washington, uh, as this was a huge issue in the Trump administration, less so in the Biden administration, but recently uh, a group of bipartisan senators have sent a letter to regulators asking them to look into whether the Chinese government has access to Americans' TikTok data, their use. Um, also keep an eye on how young people are turning into the app for news at record numbers. I think if you if you think back to late February and the opening days of the, the war in Ukraine and some of those TikTok videos, um, you know, you think of the one set to, to music by, by management and, and there were others, but there are so many young people getting this news from TikTok as their primary news source. Uh, Reuters did a poll in which they found that Gen Zers using TikTok as their primary news source is up five times since 2020. So that's astronomical. Um, and I was telling Mark earlier that I, I was I was having a conversation recently with the chief communications officer from a, his Fortune 10 company, and we were talking about what is the one big thing that he's watching and he's he's keeping an eye on in terms of how it affects him, how he does his job, what kind of advice he has to give to his boss, and he said. And, and it's TikTok related. He said he was paying attention to the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case and how influencers and big names on TikTok, whether they amplified moments from the trial or distorted things that Amber Heard said or did uh, on TikTok that came from the trial. And, and he said that is one thing that every communications executive uh, should be fully versed on, should have on their mind, because this is, this is a matter of time until it's affecting mainstream brands. It's a matter of time until it's affecting companies. Um, and 
companies and by and large right now are not ready for it. It's, it is a fully emerging thing. Uh, and so I would say that is the thing to really, really dive into over the next year, year or two, and, and really try to get your arms around as difficult as that is. So back to you, Mark. <laughs> that was absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah, Frank, you're spot on. I and mean, it's super interesting. Just in these last 10 minutes, you've mentioned, you know, Ukraine, China, TikTok, social media, uh, oil and gas. I mean, uh, McKinsey, the fact that more communicators at a high level are being asked to know more about the world and more about all these different tools is really revealing. So I'm going to open up to the floor. If you want to ask a question, just raise your hand. Um, but I'll throw it out. We can start with sports. I'm always interested in uh, the live tour. And uh, when we did that pod back in February, we were talking about Chelsea and the Premier League and yeah. with the World Cup coming up in Qatar. Um, just some of your high-level thoughts on kind of sports marketing, communications around that. Well, the live tour is the big thing right now, isn't it? And um, I know uh, some very liberal golfers who are like, look, Trump might be right about this uh, in that they, they really might make inroads uh if they continue like like if the the guy who just won the british open goes over this week to the live tour which is is widely rumored um they really might um be able to make inroads and then force some sort of a deal i, I think there are a few things and that the masters brand is so big in golf um i don't i don't know that there's any way the live tour can replicate that right now and i think we're all watching the tv deals uh, because can they ever really make it big in the U.S. with just the streaming audience, especially with golf, where it tends to, to sway a little bit older? Um, so, you know, can they force a deal with with Fox or NBC or ABC uh, to get on TV screens, to get on network TV screens on weekends, um, which is a lot easier said than done during football season? So I, I think <laughs> that is the big thing we are watching. The Live Tour, in turn, I, I think that, Look, a lot of the press conferences, and, and you know, we've reported on this, other people have reported on this, this is Ari Fleischer's firm has been working with the, two, with the Live Tour uh, on some of these press conferences. And if we're going to be honest, some of them have been a mess, you know, with people been asking questions that they're just not prepared to, to answer. And then um, somebody told this guy, sports journalist, and essentially flipped them off this week. I mean, it is really, it, it yeah. has not created the greatest <laughs> image to start. Uh, that is for sure. I, I, I mean, what do you think the time period is for how long this is going to take to play out? I, I, maybe a year, two, three years? I, I don't know. But um, it, they're not off to a great start image-wise is what I would say. Hey, Brendan, what's your question? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I have a pretty good idea where it might be, but go ahead. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, ask your opinion on how do we talk to clients about the difference between just – influence and visibility that right now this influencer culture young people who a lot of let's say some don't have jobs other than they create content they post and they amass followers which there's a formula that if you spent all day doing it you could do it and that's yeah. uh, you know what you can do but how do you say that just because i talk to my followers about it doesn't actually make it influential and brands don't understand the difference between this as a tactic and a strategy because they assume, well, so-and-so posts about my restaurant. That's got to be, you know, a catch-all moment. 
Yeah. So what I would say to that, and, and I have a few thoughts, and there's this one really funny thing happening right now and that a lot of influencers no, no longer want to be referred to as influencers. Now they're creators, uh, which is, <laughs> you know, whatever you want to make of that is what you make of that. So um, what I would say, and, and look, one of the knocks on PR as opposed to advertising and marketing is that it's hard to measure, right? We all know that. The question is, if you can measure um, whether people are actually acting on what the influencers are saying, you know, whether that is a local issue or a national issue. And I think if they are acting on it and there's some evidence that they're acting on it, then then I think you, you're going from visibility to, to influence, um, you know, really pushing the person like like almost the old call to action theory, you know, really like pushing the person towards influence. And then. That I think would would make the difference between the two of them. Um, influencers are are hard. Like when you talk to agency people, even even some of the really best ones are are like, look, influencers are still hard. There was this great Digiday article, and this is going back like seven eight years, in which all across the marketing industries, nobody had any idea how much to pay influencers. They had no they had no idea, and the influencers were taking full advantage. And and just sort of running up these exorbitant fees, and they were getting no ROI out of it, and it was it was just this crazy time. My sense is that they have their arms around this much more than they used to, but there's still a lot of questions. This is still an emerging field of how they work with influencers. Um, but I think it comes down to the measurement and the and the PR um, the PR measurement tools are so much better than they used to be. And I, I think if you can measure whether people are actually acting on these people's advice, that makes a big difference. Well, and, and somebody used the phrase to me, influencers qualified as media, which I took exception to because as someone who's held a press pass for a major network. Yeah. And, you know, there's standards of ethics, there's standards of conduct, there's standards of editorial judgment. I don't think that posting on Instagram is the same as working at ABC News. I don't either. I don't think you'll ever convince me. Either, so. <laughs> I, I don't either. And and I'm with you on that. I think there there's definitely a strategic use for a lot of these folks. Um, I think they're definitely not journalists per se. Um, and there's, look, there's this whole other debate happening in media right now about um, you know, the brand you work for versus your brand. Uh, and when our when our when our journal and a lot of this is is Taylor Lorenz driven, but you, when when are you bigger than working for the Washington Post uh, and things like that? Which the traditionalist in me is like, whoa, 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 no. But um, it's you know it's a debate people are having out there right now. Hey Brian, go ahead. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mark. So so Frank, I'm I'm wondering just from your editorial perch you know we've read a lot you know in various articles about um pressure upon organizations businesses even associations that they have to take a stance on certain social issues and i think the most consequential perhaps recently was uh the overturning of roe v wade um and and i'm wondering you know if, if this is almost being accepted as conventional wisdom that you must take a stand on that with this one. You know, it was one thing, I think it, it all started off understandably when George Floyd was murdered and everything after that. But this almost is a different kind of watershed. Admittedly, I'm not convinced that everybody has to take a stand on 
every intro, no matter how monumental it is. But I'm just kind of wondering your, your take. Is, is that overblown? I, I just I think I've seen a swath of articles or opinions that everybody has to. So uh, I would make a few points on this. And I'm, I don't have a universal answer on this because it depends on the organization. And, but one thing I would definitely say is that one thing that a lot of organizations have come around to and very wisely is that you cannot have different stances internally and externally. If you want, you, you have to be consistent across the two because this, this will get out. And I think that uh, this is something we reported on a couple of months ago where uh, you know, one of the major agencies, Zeno Group, was advising clients not to say anything on Roe versus Wade, but was saying something very different internally. And that was reported on pretty broadly. And, and that, was, that was a bit of a black eye for them. So uh, the messages have to be consistent internally and externally. What I would also say about this is I don't think that there's like a universal standard that everybody has to take a stance on every single issue. I think that it depends on a lot of different things. It depends on where your company's located, the people that work for you, you know, what their views are, how your workforce feels about something. Um, these are all very important. Um, now, I mean, I look, I mean, I, uh, I think that one of the major case studies on this that is still evolving is Disney and the, the don't say gay law in Florida. Uh, and clearly they were not, or maybe they thought they could call his bluff, but they were not prepared for somebody, for a governor to crack down on a social issue as strongly as DeSantis did. Um, and this, it's, it's worth pointing out too, that Disney had the same head of communications uh, and, she, and she's a legend in the business and had worked there for almost 30 years and retired at the end of last year. And they brought in Jeff Morrell, who was, a, who was an expert oil and gas. I think he worked at BP and, and, and some other energy companies. And what, he was actually the Pentagon spokesman at one time. Like he's done, he's done real work, tough work. And was, was just, they brought him in and he quickly resigned right after this, which shows that this did not work out the way that Disney wanted it to work out. Um, I don't know necessarily that, that that was a forced stance by Disney. I mean, I, I, Disney, I think it's well known. A lot of their, they are known to be an LGBTQ friendly company. They have a large portion of their customer base is, is either LGBTQ or allies. Um, they may have truly felt they had to take a stance on this law. So it depends, I think, on your company and it depends what your workforce is like and what your customer base is like. Uh, and, and if you're willing to take the blowback, I, I think those are the big things. I don't, I don't have like a, you know, a commandment that could, could work universally on this, but I think all those things are really important. Thank you. Hey, Jeff, West Coast, West Coast. West Coast. Always best, California, baby. Um, well, thanks, Frank. Uh, it was great to hear your insights. Uh, it's kind of interesting. My wife and I acquired a, uh, fitness studio franchise uh, that's a coach-led group fitness studio. And <clears throat> the day of the um, decision, the Roe v. Wade decision, uh, when it came down, <clears throat> literally someone who was signing up for a new membership asked the general manager of our studio, I need to know where the owners of the studio are on this issue before I uh, confirm my new membership. Uh, to which my reply to our general manager was, 
please put him in touch with me and I will let him know I'm very offended by his question and that our fitness studio is a sanctuary for people. It's not a political uh, debate hall. <laughs> Funny thing is, is he never uh, followed up, but did join. So I was really happy. I never had to have that conversation, uh, but yeah, we yeah. were making the choice to not go there, um, you know, uh, in any way, shape or form. Um, we, uh, own and operate a PR and marketing agency locally in Southern California. Um, you know, uh, I'm sure you have a comment on that. Um, but my other question was, what did you think about, uh, or what do you think about how the Djokovic situation has been handled with the U S open, given that they are citing the U S government's travel policy, um, and just kind of the coverage that's, uh, ensued, uh, following the announcement that he may not play or probably won't play the U S open, even though he's played Wimbledon and the French open. Taking it back to sports. I, I, I have, I a, have a, uh, a unique perspective on this because, and, and Mark will tell you, I'm a, I'm a Brooklyn Nets season ticket holder, and so I have an interesting opinion on, on whether or not athletes should get vaccinated and how this should work itself out. Um, I, I think that, uh, I think in their case, if they, if they are willing to stick to their guns and, and say that, you know, they are not going to let him play despite him being the best in the world and, and the blowback that they're, then they're going to go through with it. Um, I think locality is important. And I think that going back and, um, you know, early 2020, New York was hit so hard by the pandemic and the local politics of it were that um, de Blasio, our former mayor, and then Eric Adams, the current mayor, laid off a lot of city employees over this vaccination mandate. And that is why I think it was, it was not, it was not as easy of a decision with the Nets. And and let's be honest, like that, that decision may have never been changed about the vaccine mandate until it was revealed that there were a lot of players on both the Yankees and the Mets who were not vaccinated and who would not have been able to play on opening day. And I think that was a big influence there. Um, it seems like the U.S. Open is going to stick with this, right? So I, I, I would imagine that they do and they risk the blowback and, and then we'll see what happens. I, I don't really I, I don't I don't want to take like a right or wrong stance on it, but it's you know I think the locality is important in this case, and that it's it makes a big difference that it's in New York City in the, the early pandemic. Yeah, that's I, I really appreciate that. Uh, your point on locality is a really really salient point, uh, so I appreciate that very much. It's a good thing for all of us to remember. Hey Frank, I want. I want to ask you a question um, just from your kind of high-level conversations. Thinking back when I was working on the U.S.-China stuff, you know, daily, yeah. just engaging with Chinese diplomats, like a lot of times they would let in Western companies because they frankly, they wanted, the, the Western companies were the only companies that could execute or advance Chinese society, right? Like they wanted the competition or they would put more pressure on Western businesses because they had the wherewithal, the talent to execute stuff. And I just there's such a dip now in our trust in institutions, yeah. government, media. Uh, you know, is are Americans just relying more on business to kind of solve all kinds of problems? And are are you seeing like corporate executives not wanting to take that on or recognizing that they are being asked to do more? I think there, I think there is recognition absolutely that um, people are more more reliant on their employers than they ever were before. Um, and Jeff, maybe that fits in with, with what you're saying about, you know, wanting to know where the general manager of 
uh, fitness chain stands on things, but they are more reliant on employers than they ever have been before. I think this is this is an across the board thing. It's it's Democrats and Republicans uh, who have less trust in institutions. I think you also see you know less trust in traditional organizations like churches. All of these different things, media trust. I think almost every poll will tell you is down significantly in the past ten years. Um, and really the only sector that has kind of held steady seems to be nonprofits. And so uh, this is, this is a real thing and this is happening. Um, and I think it's a lot of the reason for where, why the political situation in this country is the way it is. So I think that's absolutely a thing where people are looking for employee employers to take on more responsibility. I think this has been a huge deal over the past year because there have been so uh, there have been so much opportunity to change jobs and work from home all the time if that's what you want and um you know there are definitely more activist employees that want a company to for instance um yes jeff you're absolutely right on the, the trust barometer um absolutely look to their employees and maybe they want them to have a diversity committee and maybe they want them to be doing a certain number of scholarships per year uh, for kids from diverse backgrounds. Maybe they want them to be taking a stance in different ways. And a lot of it sometimes just comes down to the basic stuff of how they treat employees. Um, you know, I think if you look at a success story in this space has been Walmart. And I think if you go back to, you know, 12, 15 years and how they, had this horrible rep of how they treated employees before that. That is much less of a news story now than it used to be. Um, and they've had a lot of success. And, and a lot of that is, is through business and through action and not necessarily through communications. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that there, there is a move away from traditional institutions towards, um, towards new things. And I think that employers are a big part of that. Greg Bunch. Hopefully you're coming from us from the shores of Lake Michigan. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking at the lake right now from my I love porch. it. <clears throat> I was in my hammock, but it was too far from my route. <laughs> <laughs> Work so from I, hammock. Maybe that's a new trend. Work from hammock. It's an awesome place. So, Frank, I teach at University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. And, you know, we're a global school. But what I observe is American executives and then American students with some exceptions, are extremely weak at understanding geopolitics, geobusiness, unless they're in an industry where they have to do it all the time. Um, but it's become like really, I mean, like even right now, I've talked with several people, they do business in both Ukraine and Russia. They're trying to figure out what do you do, right? Mm -hmm. how, how do you think about educating the business elite? I, I use that word on purpose. How do you think about educating the American business elite about thinking about geopolitics as it affects their business. You mentioned TikTok and you mentioned some other stuff. Um, I think it's really important. I, I agree with you. And I one thing that when we get new recorders, one thing I always tell them is you got to learn how to read a balance sheet. And you really, you, you got to, this has to be one of the first things on your list. You need to know because look, when, when a company's doing earnings, they can't lie about it. They have to be truthful. It's illegal not to be. And so you get an insight into how a business is actually performing. Um, so that's one thing I do. I, I don't, I, I would just say, I think, you know, a lot of, and I, I, I say this as, you know, with some adjunct experience uh, teaching in college. I mean, a lot of what folks are, it, it's very specialized. 
you know, you're going to go into this business and this is what you need to know. Uh, and we media people are really guilty of this because we, we get taught to do a few things really fast and really well, how to report, how to edit, how to produce, and how to edit for TV. And, and you do tend to miss the broader picture. So, I mean, I, don't, I think it's a situation across the board where you know, we're, we're teaching people how to do things very specifically, very well, and maybe not. I, I mean, you're always going to, I'm sure when you are, when you're teaching, though, and, you know, I'm sure the folks on this call who, who do recruiting and who bring on new people, you always know when you, when you get somebody applying for a job who is, is super curious and has a real, you know, great attitude and a spark in their eye about stuff. And even if we've run into cases where even if that person doesn't have all, doesn't check all the boxes on like the requisite skill set, that gives them a leg up in a lot of cases because you know they're going to do the extra work and they're interested and that's that's a huge advantage to me. Um, so I, I don't know. I wish I could fix what you're asking. I, I think a lot of the education is just very, very specific and that's from my experience and I think from my experience teaching too. All right, we're coming up on uh, 40 minutes after the hour. Does anybody have one last question? Mark, I have one. Oh, no. Here we go. Trouble. Um, Frank, thank you for this. Uh, it's been really helpful. I have a question um, around talent, kind of piggybacking off of that last question. Um, with the changing role of the CCO, as you were talking mm -hmm. about, I've been in both of those seats as in-house CCO um, and then also on the agency side. Um, I've been arguing for corporate affairs to be the title for a while for a lot of CCO roles, because I think depending on the company, the way that's structured is much more of an accurate reflection of the responsibilities and kind of the future of the function going forward, um, especially with direct to the CEO. Are you seeing um, with the changing needs for the for the kind of McKinsey type advisory advisory role are you seeing the right people and the right talent in place for that changing role is it changing the type of person that they're looking for for those roles i'm just kind of curious what you're seeing since you talk to so many ccos and probably the ceos as well as what they're looking for are you seeing a, a shift or a change in the types of people they're recruiting for those roles i i will actually i, I will give you what i think is a clever non-answer and that i think they want in a lot of cases, people with a lot of experience in the areas that there is. So when there's uncertainty, the thing they always tell us is when there's uncertainty, even if the person doesn't know the answer, if you've been through a few foxholes with them before, you're more likely to get a good answer out of them. And so I think that's why you see these major companies like, you know, I mentioned Disney before and Walmart um, and um, Disney and Walmart. And um, I can think of a few at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. uh, Google, who have had people who, if they haven't been at the same company for a long time, they've been in a lot of different companies from the same sector and really know this stuff well, and and really, and not even necessarily like as a specialist, but but just have so much experience with all of these different issues. Um, so to to really answer your question, I think that. I think that the title matters less to me. And to me, the, the measure of importance of where the top communications person at a company is, is who they report to. And we have always you know, advocated editorially that CCO or whatever that role is should report directly to the, CCs, to the CEO because they have unique insight 
that the CMO does not have, the chief marketing officer does not have necessarily. Um, but we still see, and this is always in flux, we still see CCOs reporting to the CMO. We have, uh, in a few cases, see them report up through legal. Uh, in a few cases, we see them report up through HR. Um, but I think by and large, we are still seeing people in the top communications role who have a wealth of experience in communications and who have worked their way up on the in-house side. We're seeing less people get hired for a CCO role from the agency side. That used to happen a lot, and now it's we, we just don't see it that often. There's clearly a demand for, for the in-house experience and people who have worked their way up, whether not at the same company, but at a similar company, to, mm. to take on that job. Um, but like I said, the thing we, we always look for is who do they report to? We, we have to, whenever we do a story about uh, a top level communications hire, we always have to have it. I always tell a reporter, you always have to have it who they report to because that really shows where communications ranks um, at a company. We still see some instances where the CCO is above the CMO. That's kind of rare, but we, we do see it in occasion and, and that tends to be a you know, not necessarily like B2B companies, but companies that do less consumer marketing. Um, so we're, I would say we're definitely seeing a trend towards more and greater in-house experience for people that are getting those, those top jobs. And just in terms of the title, people love to say that they're the first person that ever had this job. So, you know, it, it, the, the corporate affairs title might be perfectly adequate. They love saying that, oh, I'm the first chief communications officer at this company or something like that. And they might have the exact same responsibilities that they had before. So, um, like I said, it's it's more about the reporting structure, guys. Great. All right. That was great. I want to thank everybody for spending some time with us today on this glorious Wednesday. Frank, thanks for sharing your insights yeah. and expertise. Can I share your email address with the group? Yeah, absolutely. If they want to yeah. follow up. All right, perfect. Yeah, and, and I'm on LinkedIn. Um, if you if that's easier for you, if you, you prefer that. Either way is fine. Uh, but it's first. And you got and you have a podcast. You have a great I do podcast. A, well, Look. I share a podcast. I share a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I can't take credit for it, but um, it's first name dot last name uh, at prweek.com. So, and I would I would just add to that. Uh, we love talking to people that are out there that are in the trenches, so to speak. So, you know, like if you're seeing a trend out there and you're not seeing it covered by us or by ad age or ad week or whatever the case is, just drop me a line and it's super informal. We can have a conversation about it. Um, and if you're ever in New York, let me know and we could get coffee too. We'll talk about these things more. That's great. All right, everybody. Thanks right. a lot. Have a Thanks good afternoon. Mark. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Ciao. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Take care. Hey, Frank, thanks a lot, man. All right, all good? What do you want? That was great, man. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Awesome. Thanks for all making right. the time. No problem, man. Take care. Ciao. See you, See you soon. Bye.